Give me Super Mario Bros. Olympics. Give me Super Mario Party. Uh, Super Mario Bros. Movie X Despicable Me X Minions. It is on the way. We see it. It's coming here. You just gave me a terrible, terrible idea. What? You know the Mario Raving Rabbits crossovers? Yes. Do that, but with the Minions. It's free real estate. But then just like the Easter egg will be like two or three Minions that just make it into the space and that'll be golden. everyone, and welcome to episode 48 of Plot Devices. Thank you so much for joining us today on this post-Easter, post-Pesach uh, episode. It's the middle of April. It's 420 as we're recording this. Uh, hopefully you are enjoying things responsibly or have enjoyed it uh, since this episode came out. Uh, enjoying time with your families in the, the springtime of springtime, so it speaks, and I'm just saying words at this point. I am your host, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman, who you all can't see is fashionable as hell today. Noah, are you feeling as cool as you look? Don't know if I could feel as cool as I look because I'm wearing this like this serape that I got in California in the week that I spent there last week. And it has my favorite anime right on the cover. Maybe yours too. Demon Slayer characters all around it. It's actually so comfortable. I'm a little sweaty in it, but I'm okay because I know how much I'll appreciate this damn thing when winter rolls around. But beyond this, what am I doing with my money, Brandon? I'm saving up my money for an overall pet concert. I saw him post some summer dates. I see that he's coming to uh, a nearby state in New Mexico, and I love him so much. I know you, a fan of music and somebody who listed out top 10 albums for the year, listed Orville Peck's Bronco as one of them. So I wonder if you saw that news, and I wonder if you're going to make it out there. But yeah. No Phoenix dates? No Phoenix dates yet. But as a Phoenix fan, New Mexico is not that far. Not even Tucson. Ah, God. Come on, Orville. We're not a bad state. You think you know where the Cowboys are. Come on, baby. Cry is what I'm doing. That's exciting. And, you know, I love Orville Peck. All of you should listen to the Bronco. It's a fantastic country album. It's it's tremendous. Um, Brandon well, knows his music stuff and movie yeah, stuff. You do, too. Uh, that's why we're both here. Um, but partly of that is I just mentioned earlier, you know, springtime and, you know, Pesach and 420 and all these great holidays. It's also the most happiest time of the year for at least for me personally, because it's Star Wars Celebration post weekend and we get to soak in the glory of all of Star Wars things. And I'm very happy about it. Star Wars Celebration was at this point two weeks ago. I uh, Dates, I can't remember, but it was very, very recently, I should say. Uh, earlier this month, uh, Star Wars Celebration gave fans in London and around the world, because they live streamed most of it, we'll probably talk about it, um, of all the biggest things coming to Star Wars. Last year had a little controversy for not being the most news-centric thing in the world. There was a lot of great publishing stuff on the books and comics side. There was some TV news, but it wasn't, you know, mind-blowing necessarily. Well, this year they really turned it around, and uh, we have some things to talk about in the Star Wars universe, specifically on the movie side, and where the joke is obviously, well, Lucasfilm can't get their act together when it comes to movies. Things might be changing because we got three pretty big announcements in the movie world for Star Wars. Uh, number one, James Mangold, who we're going to talk about later, who directed the upcoming Indiana Jones 5. He did Ford vs. Ferrari. He did Logan. Uh, he was actually supposed to be attached to Boba Fett at one point. That's a whole other story. He is actually doing a Jedi origin story he described as a biblical epic taking place 25,000 years. Yes, that long before Star Wars The Phantom Menace, a.k.a. Episode 1. It's going to tell the story of how the Jedi came to be, how they started utilizing the Force, all that really great mystical stuff. Um, also in the works now, Dave Filoni, who, of course, is the creator of Star Wars The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, basically, you know, the head creative honcho over at Lucasfilm right now. He is going to be making, I believe, his feature directorial debut on a Mandalorian movie that will tie event that will tie together the events of 
The Mandalorian, and all the related series. So Ahsoka, The Book of Boba Fett, and Skeleton Crew. Again, we'll talk about those in just a minute. And finally, Sharmina Baid uh, Chinoy, who is probably best known to some of you for directing uh, some of the episodes of Ms. Marvel. She's an accomplished documentarian. She is going to be directing the first post-Rise of Skywalker story. It's going to be centered around Rey, what happens to the Jedi Order, and who comes out on stage to talk about it, but Daisy Ridley herself confirming that she will come back to the role. Now, if that was all we had to talk about, that would immediately be enough, at least for me. But good Lord, we have so much else to discuss. We got the first teaser for that aforementioned Ahsoka series, Rosario Dawson looking amazing in it, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. That is coming out later this summer. Uh, Lars Mikkelsen, who many people thought for a long time was going to be reprising his voice role as Grand Epperthon from Star Wars Rebels. He is confirmed to be the main villain of Ahsoka and potentially of Mandalorian Season 4 and this whole movie event that we're getting. We also got some footage of the Acolyte for the first time, but we didn't get to see it. It was only for the people at Star Wars Celebration. All-star cast in there, uh, Lee Jung-jae, Amanda Stenberg, Carrie Ann Moss. That is coming out for 2024. Also set for 2024 is Andor Season 2. They also got some footage at Celebration as well. Also confirmed for 2024, I'm really surprised at this and very pleasantly so, Tales of the Jedi Season 2, of course, the uh, anthology animated series that Season 1 talked about stories from Ahsoka and Count Dooku that's supposed to center around lesser-known Jedi. We'll see what Season 2 presents, but that is confirmed to come out in 2024 as well. The Bad Batch, just on the heels of Season 2's finale, which we haven't talked about on this show, I very much enjoy to a certain degree. That is set to come out either late next year or uh, early 2025. And Visions, Season 2, Star Wars Visions, the anthology series where animation studios from around the world are given a chance to say, what would you do with Star Wars? We talked about it a while ago on like one of our earlier episodes. We were big fans of it. That is set to come out with all nine shorts on May the 4th, a.k.a. Star Wars Day this year. Now, after all the panels and all the madness, Kathleen Kennedy, a.k.a. the head of Lucasfilm, did come out and clarify a couple other things. Taika Waititi's movie is apparently still on the docket. Ryan Johnson's movie trilogy is apparently still happening, though he is busy off in Murder Mystery World, and who knows how long he will take. That's his. That's her words. Uh, and the Kevin Feige movie, of course, the movie from Marvel CEO Kevin Feige, was, quote, never actually going to happen. Apparently, that was a bit of an exaggeration on fans' parts. There is contradiction to that. Michael Waldron, who is the screenwriter of that, has openly talked about the movie. So I don't necessarily know what Kathleen is talking about from there, but it's apparently not necessarily on the docket. Even if it isn't, we have more than enough. And that's not even getting into the publishing stuff with the High Republic and the comics. And there is so much coming out of Celebration this year. I encourage you all to check out as many of the interviews and panels that are logged on the Star Wars YouTube channel as possible. There was actually a great uh, retrospective panel on the Obi-Wan series, which we also talked about on this show. Noah, what about all this stands out? I obviously want to get to the movies first, but did any of this really get you? And did you happen to catch any of the footage coming out of Celebration uh, over the past couple of weeks? No, I actually have not tuned into them, but knowing that they're out there, knowing that I could catch some of those interviews is exciting to learn. Um, but based on what you've shared today, I got to say visions is what I'm most looking forward to. That was something we talked about some time ago here on the pod. And to know that a, a season two, which is well overdue, is finally arriving. Um, it excites me. I love these types of anthology animated shows. And we got so many different uh, art renditions and interpretations of the star wars world in that first season so i hope that the i hope that the galaxy outside is the limit for what season two can bring us it's just reminiscent of you know other shows that are out there that exist in the same space uh, i think of how entertaining a show like love death and robots is and so for visions i'm just i'm approaching that with the same mentality of please give me something new and exciting and short concise 
each episode that I tune into. And here it is nine. So may the fourth be with you. We are we looking forward to it. Um, secondly, it's going to be that Ahsoka series. Just, ooh, just the thought of getting a story centered around Rosario Dawson's uh, performance as the character and having it having this new story in the star wars world not center on tatooine i'm so happy or at least that's what i'm that's what i'm imagining i hope we get off tatooine i don't even know how much of this character is associated with tatooine but there's trauma (laughs) i've got ptsd from all the time i've spent there so the ahsoka series that teaser trailer that was released um i believe it's a a teaser though i don't think that's like the set is the first official but um i think maybe a minute and a half like but it's mostly kind of as scattered as a teaser could be and just the title cards they use for her, um, outcast and, uh, there's one other and then it lists Jedi. It's just, it's so powerful. She just, she, she holds so much respect with how she wears that character. So, ah, uh, yes, I'll be tuning in. I'll be excited. I'm looking forward to it between the two big features that I see listed here, which is one that, um, Mangold directed biblical epic that you, that you named. And then the return of Ray, the return of Ray in this new Jedi Order that we'll be seeing. How can I feel? How can you feel knowing that there is a new Star Wars movie on the rise? I've just came back from a Disney trip. So I was just in Galaxy's Edge for the first time. And that was, a, that was so just. Disney word magical <laughs> to experience with everyone walk, walking around. I got to see Mando hopping around. I got to see the Millennium Falcon and I, I'm just so. This world is pretty much in existence. Like if you were brought up with those Star Wars movies, they pretty much exist somewhere in your in your mental space and you believe they're here in the physical world. Well, the movies are no different. So the fact that we have a new movie coming, it just feels like this world is about to get even bigger in my head. I have more room for memories of Star Wars than I do the like, you know, basic math that I picked up in elementary. That that, that can be dumped for more Star Wars lore. 25,000 years before the Phantom Menace. This is already a story that is told a long time ago. So how much further can we get? I guess we'll see. But I will have to take a dive into Mangold's work and see, you know, what can be expected from this director. Uh, As myself, I don't have that much name recognition for him. How about you? I'm so excited to see Mangold doing Star Wars because he's one of those directors who has maybe not the Spielbergian wonder sensibility, but he has the same idea that, you know, him and George Lucas and that whole cloth of 70s filmmakers have just kind of being able to do anything. Like, he can do comic book movies. He can do romantic comedies with, like, Caden Leopold. And he can do these biopics with Ford v. Ferrari. And he can go back to it with Indiana Jones. And, like, that kind of versatility, I think, for a movie like this, that scale is so intimidating, at least especially to me as a Star Wars fan, just the idea of that far back and that much unknown territory. What are the Jedi at their most primeval at their most primitive what does that look like and can we introduce characters who the closest they would have as far as ties go is like yoda or the guardians of the wills and even that's far off like yeah yeah so Uh, it's it's a big challenge and i'm curious to see what mangold can do but i have full faith in him baloney cool i think the writing was on the wall this was coming in some capacity i'm excited it's going to theaters because i think something like this should be seen on the big screen but again we haven't seen skeleton crew yet we haven't seen ahsoka yet Book of Boba Fett was mixed. And hell, if you look at Mandalorian season three, the reactions, including for myself, are not grandstandingly amazing. I like Mandalorian season three, but there is a semblance of like, where are we going with this? Is there still going to be the audience there to go see it in theaters, especially for something that seems so intent on wrapping up so many storylines? I am concerned. But then we get to the Rise of Skywalker movie and 
yeah, I, I love Ray as a character. I've always loved Daisy Ridley as a performer. Um, Charmaine seems like a really capable filmmaker. I admit I haven't dived into her documentary work. I've only seen her work on Miss Marvel, which explains why she's in the Disney fold. But like, these are all announcements that I'm really excited about. There is obviously the cynical scratching in my brain going, well, look at all the movies that they've canceled. You know, look at all the stuff that Lucasfilm has done in terms of the movie front. And I'm like, yes, but almost all of that was in the 2015 to 2019 years when they were desperately trying to build up the brand. Now they have, now they have their foothold in Disney Plus. Now we're, you know, outside of Rise of Skywalker. I think I'm more confident than ever that if not all these projects exist in the full, in the, uh, in the type that they're developing, I feel confident that we will see all these stories. You know, we didn't get a chance today to include uh, a news beat, and I'll make this short, about Netflix. Really, uh, I, I, there are some headlines and a story I read from Deadline about how they're doubling down on their response or their approach to theatrical releases, which is that they they are starting to, you know, rely, they're not reliant on theaters because of the streaming giant that they are. And the article that I read was really interesting in the in the sense of how it distinguished each streaming platform and how much of them are reliant on their, you know, their associated IPs and the spinoffs that come with that compared to the original work that's being done by Netflix. And, you know, that's speaking on, you know, we're going to talk trailers in a little bit, but we have a John Wick verse movie coming straight, uh, coming to Peacock. So now is that going to be the location where you can find John Wick associated material? Uh, the Star Wars and Marvel movies only in big in, eh, only in big in the Disney plus platform. And, you know, with all this Star Wars news, I have those, those sentences from the, from the, you know, the piece that was written just in my head going, damn, like it really is a streaming war to figure out who can rival Netflix. And Disney Plus is just the giant with this material under its belt that's only going to keep growing. And it's the reason why, you know, we're now having all, not the reason, but it factors into how you can rash, make rational for this new Mufasa story that might come out soon. You know, all of these live actions that are being produced. And so didn't mean to derail the Star Wars conversation, but I am thinking about these streaming platforms and, and, you know, looking at HBO, they're less, they're less involved with expanding their IP, but more involved with them, um, bringing the, th- the big theater releases to them, the Batman, um, even that Warner deal that they had um, sometime. I was going to say, I- I forgot to include it, but like the first teaser, quote unquote, for the Penguin series, like they're bringing that theatrical experience to HBO Max or to Max now, I should say. To just Max. So and maybe we'll have a streaming wars beat the next time around. But yes, all of this Star Wars news, Visions, I said most excited for, but these features that are being announced, they're as, you know, they're as... <laughs> and they're as much of an enigma as is like what are the final marvel movies called when they announced them they're like the kang dynasty so i'll wait for more details to come out about them but as far as announcements go they have they have me hooked this is also the perfect excuse for all of you to finally watch star wars rebels because you can tell how great thrawn is um but yeah. including me yes including you like <laughs> i will give you a list of like the essential rebels episodes because it, it's worth it um but super quickly Lars Mikkelsen, good on him. He seems like a great actor, you know, just outside of it. But I love his portrayal of Thrawn in the animated stuff. I want to see him in this. Absolutely. I'm with you. That first trailer for Ahsoka, as someone who grew up with the Clone Wars, I shed a little bit of a tear. Eh, you know, um, Tales of the Jedi season two. I want to see I want to see those characters that we don't know a ton of yet. This is perfect fodder for this series. I think we do a lot with Bad Batch. I'm glad it's getting one more season. It is going to be the final season, by the way. I think they've set it up really well in season two. Um, and just quickly, as far as visions go. 
the panel actually showed the Ardman animation short. That's the company who did, you know, Flushed Away and Wallace and Gromit. Uh, it apparently looks really charming from all the descriptions. The trailers look really fun and exciting. I I didn't get a ton from the story beats. The titles have been released that I don't have time to run through all right now, but I'm with you. Like, I really hope we get a chance to cover that on this just as a follow through to season one. Uh, just last but not least, 10 on a slightly cynical note, release the Acolyte footage, you cowards. If it's done, just send it out there. It's going to leak at some point. I've already seen screenshots from it. Just get it out there. Like, it sounds amazing. I'm going to correct myself. That wasn't from Deadline. The information I shared earlier is from Yahoo Life. That's all. <laughs> ah, well, did it cite Deadline on there or? Cited the rap. Okay. Because I was going to say Yahoo sometimes does that where it's like, this is ours. It's not ours. All shout out to Yahoo. I do like your service very much. <laughs> um, let's move on to our second main topic for the day. Trailer Roundup is back as usually happens because we do the show every other week and it just happens. Um, we need a trailer, you know, we need like, maybe there's like a trailer little drum. My buddy Brandon's here, the drummer. Maybe Trailer Roundup needs its own, you know, thematic, like, whew, really introduce our listeners into Trailer Roundup. Oh. Maybe it is a roundup, you know, like a little bit of a, a little bit of a honky tonky. I don't know. Oh, like a kind of like, do, 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 do kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What you said. <laughs> All right. No, Trailer me. Roundup, because they're like, we're trying to round up these. Tra- I like that. And you, we were going somewhere there, somewhere with that. So it was mostly just a message to future me. Like, I know you want to get this out within 24 hours because your schedule is packed. If you could put together like a garage band demo of like some pastiche spaghetti Western stuff, that would be great. You know, it, it, just, just do it. Um, anyways. Trailer roundup. Second trailer, Indiana Jones. We just talked about Lucasfilm stuff. Uh, they did have a panel there. It was one of the only non-Star Wars things at Star Wars Celebration. James Mangold, of course, got up to talk about that before all the uh, Star Wars announcements came through. That is uh, that is set for theaters on June 30th. Very soon, as a matter of fact, that we get to see this finally. Also coming, that was supposed to be very soon, now is a little bit of way off in November. The first trailer for The Marvels is finally out. I know we all complained a little bit when we didn't get a spot at the Super Bowl. This is why they were waiting for Easter weekend. They were waiting for, you know, all the hype to get around it. And it did get a lot of hype. It's gotten a lot of trailer views. The first trailer for the last voyage of the Demeter, Demeter. Uh, I never read Dracula, so I don't know how you pronounce it. But it is basically a horror tinged version of a section of the original Dracula book, basically portraying Dracula as more of a monstrous creature than the kind of, you know, robe clad figure than we're used to. Corey Hawkins, David Dasmalchian, really cool cast in there. That is set for theaters on August 11th. And finally, in TV trailers, we, as Noah mentioned earlier, got the first teaser for the Continental series, or the longer version, the Continental from the world of John Wick, because apparently we learned nothing from a Star Wars story. That is going to be a three-part miniseries set for Peacock starting sometime in September. There wasn't an exact date set, but it'll be uh, that month. And finally, True Detective is coming back, finally, season four, with True Detective Night Canyon. Uh, that is going to release on HBO and Max later this year. I don't have much to say about it because it's the only one that I didn't watch. But Noah, in regards to all of these uh, really cool first and first and second looks, I should say, uh, what stood out to you? You know me, sitting in my seat at AMC theaters, about to watch Renfield. Boom, horror trailer comes on. I think to myself immediately, because it's top of mind, is this the Boogeyman trailer? Like, what could this be? But oh, wait, they're on a ship. And there's that guy from Game of Thrones. And it's like in the 1800s, 1600s. I'm not the best with the timelines and things. It's but in ship-bearing times. I see creepy box getting loaded up onto a ship. I see the ship crew going through treacherous waters. And all of a sudden, what's in the box escapes. 
whoa, what could go down? All of a sudden, wait, this is a Dracula story, but do they don't say that in the trailer, right? No, there's the there's the shipmate who's like, we call him Dracula. Or something. Yes, okay, okay. Because for a second I thought, how do we know that? For just one second, I thought maybe that um I missed something there. And I did. This is a Dracula story. Oh my gosh. Someone in Hollywood must have like tipped off the other and then tipped off the other that like a lot of Dracula projects were starting to come out. Maybe they always come out, you know, every five or so years we get that new one. I know you remember the one with uh, Luke Evans and even the one with um, Daniel Radcliffe. There's another one. Uh, but thinking on, oh, that's Frankenstein. What am I saying? Yeah, you're thinking Victor Frankenstein. Thinking of this specific story, uh, it's completely gothic in nature and all I can say is I'm ready for it. You know, it does, it does seem like an odd movie to make. Cause I'm like, who does this appeal to? Like, um, expedition horror? Sign me up. Next thing is going to be the Marvels, the Marvels and that wonderful song they used, Intergalactic by the Beastie Boys. Such a great, you know, backdrop for this. It does set you up for, I guess, the type of hype fun that is to be expected from a movie like the Marvels, which I, no is going to be all the greater and all the more enjoyable with Iman Vellani. Yes. From the from the show Miss Marvel, we got to experience one season of her like joyous attitude as the character of Kamala Khan. And now here she is in a story that looks, you know, it's similar to something, but I can't put my nose on it. Usually I'm really good at that. I'm really good at saying, oh, this looks a lot like this. But as far as the Marvels go, they interact with some kind of phenomena that displaces one into the other's location. And, you know, at the second and who knows when, you know, Rambo is going to be replaced by uh, Captain Marvel or when Miss Marvel is going to be replaced by Rambo. It just it leaves itself for a lot of confusing and entertaining situations that I'm definitely on board for. Is it the movie I expected? No. And I'm so glad because I, I was walking and approaching towards the Marvels going, how are they going to merge these three characters and like tell a story with that? Like what's going to be the driving force? But using something like this that confuses the audience just as much as its main characters. I'm right there. So, uh, those two are the first ones I have notes on, Brandon, so that we don't, you know, scatter ourselves too much. What did you think about those two? I was a brave little boy and I watched the full Voyage of the Demeter trailer because I was also at Redfield, as we'll talk about it later. And yeah, it looks really gothic. The atmosphere looks great. It's, you know, really fun ship in a bottle, pun intended type story where it's, you know, it's these characters in this isolated environment. And you're wondering how they're going to get out of it. And I'm sure it'll be great. I like the cast quite a bit. I will not be seeing it. I'm very worried about it box office wise because it's not Dracula Demeter. It's not Dracula's voyage. Like it's just the last voyage. And I'm worried that something, you know, something with, with this few huge name stars without a huge brand name attached to it, I'm worried about what it's going to do. But uh, from like the mumbling I've heard just here and there, it sounds like a really cool thing. I know it's a part of the Dracula book that doesn't get a lot of love. So I'm curious what they could do with a full movie of it. So yeah, color me interested on that. 8 million box office. My prediction. Total? Do you do you think more, Brandon? Yeah, a little more. Okay. Well, because I also don't know what the budget is, and I don't have time to look it up right now. I'm gonna say, <laughs> I'm gonna say twenty million, and I'm worried that that won't be enough. Let me write it down. I'm gonna write it down. Several months later. Oh my God, you were exactly right. Um, but yeah, the Marvels trailer. 
This was well worth it. I had so much fun watching this. I watched it several times online since. I love the little taste of the dynamic that we see between Monica and Kamala and uh, and Carol. The body swap thing is a little weird. I'm I'm thinking it might get gimmicky at points, but like purely on the trailer basis, I love it. I like you say, I love the intergalactic use. I love that we see you know uh, Nick Fury and the uh, and Kamala's family as well. I love they're introducing like all the supporting players from that. I get it. It won't be, you know, the scrolls part two as was going to be from, you know, the first movie that's going to be safe for secret invasion. Now I get it. Also, there's the idea of, well, you know, it's coming off Captain Marvel and for better or worse, that movie was not critically beloved by a lot of people. I happen to really like it. And I'm really curious to see Carol's interactions with Kamala as someone who perfectly idolizes her and who grew up in that era of idolization and what kind of nuances come as a result. And also with Carol and Monica and just the idea of a lot of the estrangement that has come since WandaVision in the first movie, like what uh, what kind of develops from that. So there's a lot of really interesting character beats you can play with. With a character like Kamala, she's growing up in an age where she's a hero inspired by her heroes. And our other heroes are more so like they're circumstantially like they've became heroes so i wonder how that's going to fit into the world she'll be our first of the younger avengers to make it here now on the bigger screen so let's see what that means for the future of those characters maybe we'll get a tease uh super quickly there was not a lot to the continental teaser but it does look very cool i will say and indiana jones dial of destiny i will say that it does look like the new, you know, final take on the indie character, but that's exactly what I thought walking away from Kingdom of a Crystal Skull. I can only hope that this one does more, does more with the character of Indy. And that's not to say that I didn't enjoy Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It was fun for when it came out, but now I've kind of got a harsher eye looking over at the Dial of Destiny. Um, even with the talent attached, I just hope that they tell a great story and that the CGI de-aging doesn't look too jarring. It looks great in the trailer. I hope that those aren't the, their best shots. Let's move on to our quick hits portion of the show. It's the part of the show where we take uh, one topic each, take about a minute, minute and a half each that we don't want to do a full discussion on, but we think you guys should know about anyways. Uh, Noah, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I'll go ahead and take it away today. Go ahead. In a three and a two and a one. The quickest of all quick hits, I am bringing to you news of a new feature that is going to be a sort of Bond versus Born flick. I'm taking that straight from a Deadline article that talks about this announcement involving two of Hollywood's most, I would say, top A-list women of the past, like, several decades, at least in the early 2000s, these women dominated when it came to, like, these action thrillers. I'm talking about Catwoman. I'm talking about Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Why did I mention Catwoman where one of them got a Razzie? You tell me. I'm talking Angelina Jolie and Halle Berry stepping in and co-starring in this. The title is called Mod v. Mod. It's a big action, global trotting thriller that's going to be coming out. Comes from the writer Scott Mosier, who doesn't have many credits under his writer's um, listing on IMDb, but I do see Free Birds, the upcoming... Oh, I'm thinking about a wrong movie. Just kidding. Um, I do see Free Birds, a 2013 picture listed under his belt, so we can only imagine what he can produce <laughs> with that experience. Um, the title Mod v. Mod is also going to be co-produced by the two leading ladies, and I'm a big Jolie fan. Um uh, Hotted my excitement when it came to her appearance in Eternals, but that was but a taste of what's to come from this new um, action-packed adventure that I hope to go on with these two stars, and I love them. I can't wait to see them. Time. Free Birds, that is a movie I have not heard of in a long time. Brandon, you know which movie I was thinking about, right? I think I was talking, I was thinking Migration, because I just saw the trailer for that. 
Which one is Migration? Migration is the new movie that tells the story of literally, you guessed it, like it's an animated story comedy oh, of these birds. Yeah, because it had a little spot before Mario. Yes, the writers Mike White, director Benjamin Renner. Um, did it look like the so amazing? But when I saw Freebirds, I immediately thought that it was it was the same one as uh, right. Migration. So my bad on that. But um, you know, what did you th- what do you think about this announcement? Halle Berry and Angelina Jolie. The article list says this is the first time the two stars will be be together in a feature. Can you believe that? It's a little odd. I love the fact that you mentioned they're producing. You know, they both have action experience before. I can't wait to see, like, what the choreography styles look like and what the kind of story intent is. But, like, just purely on the basis of it, this is a kind of instant. Yeah, totally. Ana de Armas, you have your you have your money's worth cut out for you, okay? You're going to show up in Ballerina. You're going to show out, I'm sure. But then it's going to get back to the OG crime-fighting women. Let's go. Yes, and uh, we're not talking about the mother this week because it's not out yet. But, like, maybe Jennifer Lopez comes back for the sequel. <laughs> That's right. It's what 355 tried to be, and I didn't mean to make that a joke, but it should have been better. Let's get to my quick hit really quickly in three, two. So for the past seven years, yes, it has been seven years since Star Trek Beyond. Uh, Star Trek fans have wondered, where is our next big movie? You know, you're talking about all the Star Wars stuff. They got all the movies. What about Star Trek? Well, now we know. And it's unfortunately not the fourth Chris Pine Zoe Saldana movie that is coming at some point, maybe, possibly. But it does sound pretty cool. Uh, Star Trek Section 31 is set to start production next year and eventually come to Paramount Plus as an original movie event starring none other than recent Academy Award winner Michelle Yeoh. The movie is going to center on Yeoh's Philippa Gorgiou character from Star Trek Discovery, specifically the anti-hero version of the character last seen at the end of that show's third season. Uh, that titular organization, by the way, uh, Section 31, was first introduced in Deep Space Nine, then appeared in Star Trek Into Darkness. Trekkies know about it. I don't know too much about it. The film will see Georgiou joining the organization to protect the Federation and face the sins of her past. This is a statement from Yo in regards to the movie. Quote, Section 31 has been near and dear to my heart since I began the journey playing Philippa when this new golden age of Star Trek launched. To see her finally get a moment is a dream come true in a year that showed me the incredible power of never giving up on your dreams. We can't wait to share what's in store for you. And until then, live long and prosper unless Emperor George you decrees otherwise. Uh, Star Trek Discovery director and executive producer Olatunde Olasunsami, I hope I'm saying that right, will direct the project with a script from Discovery writer Craig Sweeney. I admit, I have never watched an episode of Star Trek Discovery. I don't know too much about the show, but I know that Michelle's character is beloved in there. We love her on this show. I, I love the fact that she's getting so much acclaim after everything everywhere. It's about damn time. And I think this should be in theaters and time. More Michelle, your praise. Woo! Woo! Applause. Applause. She's getting her flowers as she should. Star Trek Roundup. Whoa. What's going on here? I'm glad that you called the audience out by name as Trekkies. I myself am also absent from that party. Maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe I should actually like tune into these Star Trek movies, especially now with a star like Yo being attached to a new movie event on Paramount Plus. Hmm. Well, I definitely I wish I could say that I was surrounded by Picard fans, not to say that there's limited ones out there, but just the circles I'm involved in are are less Trekkie heads than I guess I hope that they would be because I feel like Star Trek has been generationally consistent, always appearing, always having new um, movies and series, especially coming out. And do you feel that your circles are different when it comes to Star Trek fandom? 
No, it kind of goes to a bigger point that Paramount is trying to do, and we would be here all day for that. But like the point of Paramount trying to consistently revitalize Star Trek and make it relevant to new generation. And they are trying. There's a lot of stuff out right now that's for a variety of audiences. But it is kind of thing where I run in similar circles where like I know a couple people, but like I know a ton who are friends of other properties. This goes back to the point of those streaming discussions about what Paramount yes. is looking to hold on to and to expand and stretch until it rips. Who knows if Star Trek is a franchise that can rip, but they're doing what they can to really, for lack of a better term, milk some of these IPs. Who knows? It's, I, I, doubt, I don't doubt it's going to be great, but what's going to be great? What's going to be great is the Michelle Yeoh feature that's coming out. I don't know if the very next piece of Star Trek that they're going to tell, and that doesn't belong, that comment isn't exclusively for Star Trek. It, it also um, can be targeted towards the Marvel's ones that come straight to streaming. It can be rivaled against the Star Wars content that goes straight to streaming. We did hype up plenty of the material we announced before, but there's bound to be one or two that really kind of just, they go out and don't really cause much impact. It'll be purely interesting to see if Star Trek movies can function on Paramount Plus, because there was a thing for a long time between CBS All Access and Paramount Plus of like, yeah, the series are doing well. Strange New Worlds is getting a ton of acclaim. You know, Proximity, I think, is doing pretty well. So like there's a thing with Star Trek doing well in terms of series, but in terms of movies, it's more mixed. And I'm curious to see what a streaming option will do to that. And that'll do it for our quick hits portion. On to our new releases for this week. We only have two, uh, but they're pretty substantial releases for both of them. Uh, Renfield, it is the movie on Dracula's assistant uh slash the movie confirms as familiar it's kind of a retelling of that origin story nicholas holt stars in this and of course it is a movie that you've heard with nicholas cage hamming it up as dracula noah what's all this about what are they doing with dracula mythology here so in Renfield, we have Nicholas X, Nicholas, Nicholas Holt, Nicholas Cage, one of them playing Dracula, the Count, and the other playing his familiar, his assistant, somebody who is burdened with the task of going out and collecting innocence specifically in the blood of the innocence so that he can constantly uh, provide nourishment to Dracula throughout the course of their relationship, uh, their partnership. Um, <laughs> it's funny just to use that word because of the flows and like the way this plot plays out. But anyways, the course of their relationship is that, uh, Renfield is tasked with going out and supplying so many warm bodies, wink, wink, to Dracula as he's constantly getting himself in a position where whether it be, you know, Van Helsing's or it be, you know, the priests who come after him, he fights the good fight, but usually ends up at like 1% of his power looking like a mangled skeleton and has to slowly and slowly feed until he gets his full Dracula powers back. What this story is looking to tell is really the story of Renfield's independence. You know, he goes to a support group, which ends up being a popular location for this story. And the supporting characters that are involved uh, are just as important. And he's looking for an answer as to how to get rid of his narcissistic boss, or at least how to rid himself of the, of the partnership. He's so like found himself in after all these years. Now, some supporting cast members and kind of a B plot comes in when uh, we meet Aquafina's character, um, I believe it's Officer Quincy and Officer Quincy is working in this city to crack down on the on the operating, you know, power family. Uh, can I use the word that I don't believe they're cartel, but like a mafia family or what were they? They're basically a mafia, basically a mafia family led by popular Parks and Rec cast members. So one of my friends said, do you know this one, Brandon, or no? Well, yeah. So Ben Schwartz is kind of the ben younger Schwartz. enforcer. 
And and voice of Sonic. And voice of Sonic, yes. But we, we should also quickly mention uh, Shorei Agashlu is the kind of matriarch of the family. And that she has a voice that is, you know, you could hear her around any corner and you'd immediately... You wouldn't even be able to put one character to her because she has even popped up as animated roles that have just become so, um, I don't, I don't know, cemented in my memory. I even imagine her character in Arcane. I was going to say. Moving on. Um, yes, this story involves the officers looking to crack down on this, um, operating family in the city who just so happens to be, you know, at the intersection of Renfield's next victims actually ended up being the, a group of men who stole the cocaine from the powerful family. And now officer Quincy has to crack down on him, but also fall in love with the vampire's assistant who doesn't have the powers of a vampire unless he eats bugs. And these aren't Dracula enhanced bugs. These are kind of just bugs. The story, the movie doesn't really do a good job of defining them either. They're simply a plot device. Ah, He said it. He said it. This movie was a lot of bloodshed. And a lot of Nicholas of opportunities for Nicholas Cage to be Nicholas Cage on screen, which I do not frown at. But other parts of this movie did draw more of a frown on my face instead of the, you know, the excited kind of giddy smile that I anticipated given the action elements that are teased in the trailer or the type of comedy that comes between the support group's leader Um or kind of, you know, guidant person and Renfield. I just think that at least my early impression to share now was that this this movie I had hoped would have more peaks and valleys, but I found that the, you know, the latter was more involved here. It fell flat for me. And I think it relied too much on just being outlandishly gory, which was hilarious the first few times, but eventually kind of, it didn't have the same appeal to me. Um, but I'm sure we'll get into the interesting intricities intricities of it all how did some of the details stand out to you and what did you find yourself paying attention to i was gonna say i think the word you're thinking for is intricacies right intricacies thank you i take your word very much for this because i know you've seen more dracula incarnations more vampire incarnations and more comedy horror incarnations than i have like i was already trepidatious to see this because the trailers made it look you know really fun and weird and wacky but i also know that it's described you know viscerally as a horror movie and i was concerned how much i would take it um, as a horror movie, I don't think it's that scary really at all. There's a couple of atmospheric moments with Nicolas Cage where they try and, you know, taper down some of the lights or like make the shadows more characters. And that is a little creepy, but overall it's not, it's more of a, it's more of a comedy action movie more than anything really. And again, we should also mention this is Chris McKay's not live action debut, but his first live action movie since the Lego Batman movie, which I absolutely adore. So I was curious to see what he could do in the setting. Cause I've only seen Lego Batman. Um, for myself personally, I like a lot of this, but I share a lot of your concern where it's uneven a lot of the times. And I think there are parts of the story that really, truly gripped me and other parts where I was like, this is definitely a story. Um, and for me, the stuff that really works is the stuff between Renfield and Dracula. Um, you've probably heard, you know, Dracula's stuff already. You know, Nicolas Cage is, I won't say it's the role he was born to play because he's Nicolas Cage, but like, He's having the time of his life with this. He is hamming up every second of this, but he's also toying up the very blatant narcissism, uh, very blatant narcissism, the malevolence of Dracula and kind of combining the two into an incarnation that I don't think we've ever seen. I was really impressed from a performance level, but also just watching him for what he is. And then Nicholas Holt 
who is, as we mentioned with Taron Egerton, the other show, like, ah, oh, he's always great. Like, Nicholas Holt is almost always great, but I really was gripped by his performance here. He finds a lot of really interesting semblances of just when Renfield knows what to take and when he's willing to be confident. And I really found his balancing of those dynamics really interesting from, you know, trying to see what someone who is in that abusive relationship and how much power they think they have versus what they actually have and kind of attempting to pull themselves out of the ringer, so to speak. I really was gripped by his character. I really found him one of the more interesting characters I've seen this past year. And their dynamic, I think, really forwards the whole movie, as does a lot of the style. Like, I think the action sequences are pretty fun, all things considered. There's uh, there's an apartment complex scene that is gruesome in, I think, all the right ways. But there are also things that I will vehemently criticize this movie for, but I want to toss back over to you. Yeah, this movie takes the, I guess I would just say, surprising approach of really educating Renfield on what it's like to be in a partnership, be codependent with somebody who is a narcissist and taking, taking like pulls from that kind of support group and applying it to Dracula's familiar is just, it's just a crossover that I think I hadn't anticipated to, um, to really matter much with the, what the stakes of the story were cracking down on this, uh, this mafia family that exists and also just evading one of the most notorious, monstrous killers who even refers to himself as a god in the movie. Like the stakes are already high with that situation alone. So when they tried to fit in this other thing, I just didn't find it really working all the time. I found myself kind of more, um, uh, bored with the, with the, with the repetitions of, you know, affirmations. And I know, I think it was supposed to be very comedic, but unfortunately it just didn't hit the entire time. Um, Dracula was a fearful character, but in, in scenes where he is, you know, for, for one of them, there was a scene where Dracula is facing off against Renfield in Renfield's new apartment. And I found that scene to actually be hilarious because of Cage's acting. And that's where this movie is so great. It's so entertaining when you just focus on his Dracula and how much of a diva he can be in that character. I just find it uh, hilarious. And he does such great work here. If it was more of that story, then I'd be all the way here for it. But when we get back to the action that involves Renfield and we get back to Aquafina's Quincy, who for some of this movie, I thought, are we in end of watch? Like, are we in John Wick? You know, why, why suddenly do we have two superhero killers? And now we got like cop against cop. You know, there's, um, there's, what's the word? There's corruption going on in the city. Suddenly we're in Gotham. Um, I don't really know. I don't really know. I'm throwing a lot at you, but that's because this movie threw a lot at me and I'm just reflecting it back. Uh, most of the, I think more, most of the comedy works. I think that, um, comedy even exists outside of the dialogue the yes those action sequences are absurd and some of them some of the moves that are made you know disarming a man and then using those two arms to then impale another two men image impale but not even with the pointy part of your arm like with the shoulder dismembered part of your arm what much of this movie makes you go what (laughs) and then you laugh because it's absurd yeah, because I'm like, yes, it makes you go, ha, but also like, ha, ha, this is so weird. Absolutely. Brandon, I'd like for you to share your next point because uh, I lost the next one I had, but it'll, it'll come back to me. But over to you. 
Well, because it goes to your point, which is that I want to point out, you know, Ryan Ridley wrote this and I'm not familiar with his screenwriting work. And I, again, wasn't able to look it up in the instant. But like, I want to bring it up because, again, I like a lot of what he's doing here. I like, as you mentioned, that, you know, that kind of reinvention of the mythology towards Dracula and Renfield. That's great. I like Aquafina very much. I like Ben Schwartz very much. I, you know, as you say, Shara Agdashulu, I like very much. The cop stuff is so boring. It's not so much an idea of like, you know, oh, like she's the one good cop, so we have to sympathize with her. No, it's nothing like that. It's just more the fact that like her dialogue is just really bare bones. There's like a whole relationship between her and her sister, played by Camille Chen, that should be really fascinating. They're both basically estranged sisters who are trying to deal with the death of her of their father, who was also a cop on the force that kind of ties back into the my like that kind of ties back into the mob family. And that should be really interesting and poignant. And Aquafina is, you know, if you've seen The Farewell, if you've seen Swan Song, like she has that dramatic heft in her. I've seen it before, but it's not there. And like Shara Dashalu is basically asked to, you know, strut around in these amazingly designed power suits, but do nothing much else. Ben Schwartz is just basically asked to be loud and annoying and he does it fine. And then they try to do something with his character for a minute. And I didn't really find it working. Just the crime stuff in this movie is... It's tedious. It's unbelievable at times in a movie that is very unbelievable. And I like how unbelievable it is, but it feels just so I wasn't gripped by it as much. There's a central relationship uh, between Renfield and Dracula that is poignant and has real world implications. And I found myself taking stuff away from, but the rest of the movie surrounding it and unfortunately is very important. Like the crime family is important to how Dracula gets his next meal. You know, Renfield's relationship with Rebecca is important. Like you can't just take away from it. And it makes the whole movie this really huge mess that I still wound up really liking. But the more I circled back to it, I just kept thinking, you're not making it easy. I want to talk about the production of this movie, more so the filming of this movie, the camera, maybe it was the aspect ratio. Maybe it was whatever kind of shooting material they used, but I just, it did not look like the type of movie I would expect a lot of these stars to be attached to, um, let alone like the writers. You mentioned Ryan Ridley, also Robert Kirkman. Uh, the two have partnered before on series like Invincible. Um, specifically speaking on Ridley, he has worked on Rick and Morty episodes. I see community. That explains his, it. I see community under his, um, writing belt. And we know Kirkman having been, uh, responsible for you know the walking dead and much of its adaptations on screen i wonder who eats all of the walking dead's material in terms of streaming service amc plus well it was on netflix for a while but i think amc might have taken it off Hmm. all right but uh yeah in this writer space i'm you know i'm not really surprised they didn't really get all that mafia and like cop drama stuff out when i was watching it i think I don't know. I, I hate to use the word cheap because obviously nothing is like cheap here on screen, but just certain settings and certain uh, takes that they had done on site, specifically at the bar fight scene. And then wherever they had the alleys where all of the cops and families kind of merged, they just didn't really do their outdoor settings very well. It, it makes me question why they look so just separate from reality um i much more preferred this movie when we were in dracula's lair which is like an abandoned hospital or you know renfield's apartment wasn't that interesting it was kind of like a it looked like a student film's budget and that's that should that should be a problem well like the thing is you know obviously the dracula lair is dracula but like you know renfield's apartment has character like there's a sense to like this is what someone who is as old and is as experienced but as you know, I agree. Detached from humanity would want in his place. And so I kind of liked for how boring it looked. It kind of yeah. made it more interesting. And, 
you know what you're right you know the the displacement of random colors scattered against the walls and like furniture that's only barely thought about and sweaters cracks in the wall like he's only making an ugly place a little bit elevated it's still ugly (laughs) so that that's actually a fair point there that the apartment renfield's apartment does serve um much of a character purpose as he does so but what do you think about that the production details well, I was just going to add to that. It's like it also adds to his optimism, like the idea that like he can just come in and fix something. That he has that hope that like you know he keeps being like, oh, I'm not the hero. I'm definitely not the hero. But like that is one thing that he can make look nice and pleasant. And it has that again that just slightest character beat that I just really find fascinating. But going to your point, I won't say the movie looks bad. I'd say that there's a couple of instances where it looks pretty good actually. My issue is with the sets. Like this is a movie that has that is trying to combine Dracula movie lore with mafia movie lore with New Orleans set design. And I very rarely ever felt like we were in New Orleans. Like the bar is maybe one, but like even the hotel doesn't really have a New Orleans vibe to it. It feels cheap, not in a sense of like how it's shot, but to like what they use. It feels kind of like um it feels kind of like what I watched with Air, where that is a movie where Yes, it's only in courtrooms and like, you know, a desktop, desktop, like, you know, uh, office room scenes, but it's only a couple of locations. You can tell they were doing it on a budget. And this very much feels like we could have gone bolder with it and we just didn't. Did you find any appeal in the romance between Renfield and Quincy? At times. Maybe with the flowers beyond that. Could have done without it. Two or three instances at best. Um, I, although I do like them as friends, I do think they make each other better purely from a character point of view. I just felt like their chemistry was maybe being pointed out a few too many times, maybe just more of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing that I just went, that I think may have gone a bit too far, but yeah, I wish it was better. I watched the entrance of Quincy's sister and thought, oh my gosh, it's her love interest. <laughs> and then looking at, her, looking at her name tag, it said, also said Quincy or something like that. And I was like, oh, never mind. They're sisters. <laughs> get out, get out, get out. <laughs> Next thought, uh, Brandon, I'm ready to move to ratings. Let's do it. I, I think I might surprise you first. Um, this is a seven. Okay, now give me the real rating. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious because... Okay, I, hear you, and, I hear you. And my reason being, this movie is not great by any means. It, it really... Because again, as I mentioned, the bad stuff about the movie or the lazy elements of the movie or the story are just constantly coming around and I didn't really truly care about those it does feel rather shoddily produced and there are things that i wish were handled differently but the stuff that's great about it is so great like again i think you know the renfield dracula relationship both nicholas holt and nicholas cage are so compelling at their performances it really drives it forward i did you know i like the action choreography i like where the story goes regardless of the stuff that's trying to force its way in and again at the end of the day there's a vibe to it like it does have horror elements but it is gruesome and wild but it it embraces how absolutely nuts it is and for me just as an audience member and for a movie that's just i think over 90 minutes i was rarely as bored by it as i'm making it out to seem it's just more of a thing of i wish it was more consistent but it is that thing of the stuff that is so good compared to the movie we're going to talk about next i really was just truly gripped and uh, and enamored by it so yes it is a disappointment on a lot of levels but i would still recommend you see it well said so my for my own rating, I'm going to go ahead and give Renfield a five. Honestly, for a 90-minute runtime, I expected a movie that would just grip me a whole lot better and for a whole lot longer than it had. I think that this movie is doing a lot and credit to its, you know, 
writers for taking on the assignment and, and, you know, really going for it. But for myself as a viewer, I did find myself questioning kind of like where we were going and why. And I never like to do that during a movie. I never like to be pulled away from my main story and my main story of Dracula's familiar going out and collecting innocence and deciding he wants to live a different life. Uh, it seemed like we just strayed from that path all too often and started incorporating other characters and placing importance on them where I didn't see the need. Most of its comedy works even in physical comedy, but other instances, I, I do question the, um, I just question the approach to the characters. And yeah, with that being said, I'm going to give Ren for the five. Nothing really stood out to me that I, you know, left out of this review. So, uh, it's not my biggest, Hey, run to theaters and go check it out. But if you're looking for that, um, Hey, late night rental or couch comedy, just to throw on, just kind of laugh at the absurdity of it all. That's the Renfield recommendation for me. Something we can really shink our teeth into. We're talking. Brandon and Noah are covering the Super Mario Bros. Brandon is here to tell you all about, I believe it's already the highest grossing video game adaptation. I think so. Let me keep talking. I'll check. Okay. Super Mario Bros. We have such vocal talents as dot, dot, dot. Seth Rogen's Donkey Kong, Carrie Payton's Penguin King, Keegan-Michael Key's Toad, Anya Taylor-Joy's Princess Peach, among others. I'm being completely an ass, <laughs> but over to you. Tell, tell our listeners about Super Mario Bros. the movie. You're right. This is, as of right now, the, the highest grossing video game movie of all time. It's head and shoulders over Warcraft, which is number two. I think Warcraft is 430 right now. This is like 730. Uh, but yes, Super Mario Bros., the movie on the big screen. I hope you get that joke. Uh, yes, it finally happened. Uh, we've got it directed from Aaron Horvath and uh, Michael Jelenic, who did Teen Titans Go to the Movies. They worked on a lot of that show previously. And it is from our good old friends at Illumination, a.k.a. the Minions guys. We have Mario and Luigi here, voiced by Chris Pratt and Charlie Day. They are a brother duo of plumbers in seemingly real world brooklyn uh that's kind of how the movie starts they're down on their luck their uh their old boss voiced by sebastian maniscalco is a total jackass to them and they're like ah we just you know want to plumb some toilets and sinks and make things fine and then they find a mysterious green pipe and the pipe transports them to this interdimensional place uh luigi gets tossed into what is called the badlands he gets captured by an evil dictator named Bowser, voiced by Jack Black. And Mario gets transported to the luxurious, optimistic Mushroom Kingdom. He meets, as you mentioned, Keegan-Michael Key as Toad. He meets Anya Taylor-Joy as Princess Peach. And they are eventually teamed up to try and defeat Bowser and his evil army, who are attempting to take over not just the Mushroom Kingdom, but eventually the whole world. Bowser has this grand plan for him and Peach that I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, Seth Rogen, as you mentioned, as Donkey Kong pops up in there as the kind of alpha male of the Kong tribe, the army that they are trying to recruit to defeat Bowser, and adventure ensues, comedy ensues, and holy crap, no, we have a Mario movie. What is happening? Is this a movie that was made for the gamers? That's the boldest question of all approaching this movie. And I'm going to answer that really quickly. Yes, I think that this movie really was. Um, sitting through it, I think in the beginning, I was kind of turned off to the... It opens up with the commercial of Mario and Luigi actually taking on, you know, very... very uh, italian uh sorry let me do that again 
the movie starts off with Mario and Luigi taking on very strong Italian accents for this ad that they're pushing out for their plumbing business. Then they go on to uh, answer their first call only to have it be like a what can go wrong except for everything type of moment in a movie where I was waiting just to get to the Mushroom Kingdom and I was waiting to see my familiar faces of Toad, of Princess Peach, and to learn why Bowser is looking to uh, destroy all of Mario World. And my early concerns for this film after witnessing the trailer had been this. Why are we experiencing a story where Mario is playing a, you know, fish out of water where he has to kind of learn these new worlds as opposed to being somebody who is already well-versed in his uh, position in the Mario world and his relationships to these characters. I was turned off by that when I saw the trailer, having watched the movie, I actually don't mind. I don't mind their approach of having Mario and Luigi be real life uh, characters from New York who get sucked into a green pipe and, and, and then end up in the mushroom kingdom. At least half of them do. We know that Luigi ends up in the dark world and that's where Bowser's uh, castle is located. And the main quest of this film being surrounded by a, you know, a superstar. I only can't wait for the, like when that theme is even when it's teased in the beginning, I'm just like, oh, it's going to be so powerful when they finally play it. But yeah, moving throughout this movie, I just found so many moments where as a gamer, I just so, so much nostalgia came through. Like it wasn't just the fact that we were experiencing characters like Toad, uh, you know, share the screen with all of these other characters of uh, Donkey Kong, be it uh, you name it. But it was the fact that they've somehow worked in instances from you know be the mario kart games or just the platform runners that you play and they provided so much detailing i think in their world that i was pleased and i watched this movie going yeah this is fully a mario movie um you know those those transformative mushrooms that they eat the fire flowers the other things that pop up in the movie that i won't spoil because they are these big moments and they feel that big for the most part, I hadn't minded any one person's performance. Uh, there are standouts, of course. And if mine surprises you, it is Seth Rogen's Donkey Kong. I, I really did like his uh, take on the character. And because these characters aren't really, from what I know, and the games that I've played, they're not the most vocal. I think they're just mumblers. Um, they're like, woohoo! Like, you play Mario Party, and they're just like, yeah! But when you apply a voice to them and you ask this actor and this writer to interpret these characters and how they would act and, and how they would say certain things, I, you know, they didn't give me a character that I didn't recognize. And I was very thankful for that. Um, even somebody as, you know, as snarky as like the wizard character was entertaining to see on screen alongside Bowser as sort of like the, um, (laughs) the Igor type character. Uh, and so I really admired seeing that. And, you know, we got a musical number all about peaches coming from the the lover, the romantic Bowser. So can't wait to hear Brandon's take on that uh, rendition. You know, what? I want to build off on your earlier point, which is, is it for the gamers? And what is your experience been with Mario overall? Because it is so diverse as a series. My experience with Mario overall is going to involve the um, mainly the platformers, I would say, like I was a big fan of. Uh, the Nintendo game Smash Bros, having played it in elementary school, like always after school, that was like a big thing for my after school program was they had a GameCube. So we played um, Smash Bros all the time. So familiarizing myself with all these characters and then playing the platformers. Um, I I wish I could name them for you, but I can't. And I can't tell you that I'm so much of a fan that like the first time I saw Mario, he was saving Peach from a, from, uh, a monkey. And that monkey's name was Donkey Kong. Even then, 
you know, you're watching these movies and you are reminded of the fact that Donkey Kong does have that early relationship with Mario. Um, I did play the Donkey Kong game though. So when they, sh- when they flashed Diddy Kong, I was like, yes, yes, show us Diddy Kong. He does uh, make a tiny appearance. Kind of fun. <laughs> Beyond that though. Yeah. It's mainly just been the, um, those platformers where you could play two players and then it came up to four i think with the wii u and that just created its own lane of memories for me and my friends i've never seen the original live action movie you can speak on that if you have um (laughs) but i don't think i've heard i don't think i've heard good things i think it's kind of just something that hilariously happened uh and you know otherwise i've never played luigi's mansion although that is more of like a scary of the nintendo games so that would have been fun to play but i've actually never versed in that and then the mario party games that's those have always been staple memory and um, nostalgia games for myself and friends. So uh, how about you? What have you? What's your familiarity with the Nintendo Mario-verse? Well, regarding the live-action movie, I like Bob Hopkins. I like John Leguizamo. Anyway, as far as the games, uh, <laughs> I I would not consider myself an aficionado by any means. I'm not an obs- it, It's not, put it this way, it's not my love of Pokemon. Like, I can tell you pretty much anything about that series. But like Mario, I played most of the Mario Kart games like you, I, you know, Mario Party as a kid. I played the original. I played, you know, pretty much every Smash Bros. Incarnations. Like, I know a lot of the broad strokes of, you know, Mario and that mythology and that iconography of that franchise. So like coming into this, I was curious. But I will say, I do think its biggest strength is its utilization of that entire mythology. Like there are teases to you know, Super Mario Odyssey to the original Donkey Kong came to, as you mentioned, Luigi's Mansion. Like there are those things peppered in in there where you, even if it's not the case, you do get the vibe as a fan of, they really tried to make this as all encompassing and as, and as good of a distillation of the Mario mythos and legacy as possible. And I, I color me impressed. Like I'm genuinely impressed by that. And in the world design too, I don't have the you know set and production designer in front of me, but the world is really immersive once you get into it. Even when you're talking about like the Brooklyn stuff, like that stuff has character and has kind of a liveliness and a heartbeat to it. And then you get to the Mushroom Kingdom and the Darklands and like there's stuff there that like if they wanted to expand upon this, I would be more than happy to. It's maybe the best looking movie Illumination has ever done just between the characters and how they move and their expressiveness. So like purely on that sense of like, trying to make a Mario movie that is encapsulating the franchise as a whole, I found myself pretty impressed. I was a bit distracted when we had the soundtrack that we did. How did you like it? Also kind of a thing that I'm impressed by. Um, Okay. It's not, I'll admit, it's not the most unique thing in the world, and I wish they had taken a couple more trances with it. But Brian Tower is the composer for here. He's um, he's done the Scream movies. I believe he's done a couple of the Fast and Furious movies as well. And he worked with Koji Kondo, who's, you know, the Mario music guru. And it, Sinos, there's, an amazing, there's an amazing piece in the LA Times if you want to read about it. But, like, I liked the little Easter eggs he incorporates in there. Like, there are, you know, as you mentioned, the Invincible Star theme, but there are surprises in there peppered throughout. I had the feeling of, like, oh, you're using this and then kind of tapering off into your own arrangements and your own sense of excitement about it all. And yeah, it's not completely unique, but again, as a fan, I did find it pretty engaging. See, and that's what I'm looking at now. I'm I'm pulling up the track list just so I could find which one of those just felt like the the too easy like go hard rock anthems that when they came on, I just immediately thought like, oh, like this isn't like a a James Gunn movie. Like, why am I why is that in my Mario movie? And call me like kind of like, you know, a little snotty for thinking that. But while I was watching, yeah, little kids aren't gonna care, but 
you know, myself just watching the movie. It could have been any movie too. It's not specific because I'm like, oh, keep Mario sacred. But it didn't feel like the the music I was listening to when not incorporating the original like Mario tunes, when not incorporating those had me questioning, why is this in this movie? So if you feel like, you know, you had that same reaction, um, it's why I bring it up. No, that's important because it's also the other side of that coin where like, I'm coming from a perspective of like, I appreciate all of that and that's really interesting. But it also goes to the point of, and because this is a Super Mario movie made by Illumination and they're trying to distill all these elements of Mario. Great. What's the new stuff about it? Which is either the character moments, the dialogues, the pacing of it. What about it is separating it from just being a really good non-interactive Mario game? And that's where I have to be a bit more negative about it. Um, And I think that goes to kind of your point of like, the fanboyism of it all can be fun and interesting, but I need to grip onto certain things. And I will say this, and I hate saying this to start off with, Chris Pratt is not a terrible Mario. I'm there. Yep. Forgivable. I kept waiting for the moment for him to really get on my nerves. And I think after that first spot where he's basically doing the Mario voice, I was like, if this doesn't annoy me, I don't know what will. And the dialogue is another story. Like the dialogue is pretty bare bones during a lot of it. And I didn't really grip onto it. But like, as far as just Chris Pratt's voice and his man, uh, and his kind of mannerisms about it all, he's doing a fair job with this. He, I wouldn't put him in the top three personally. Like I think Keegan-Michael Key is doing a really interesting take on Toad. He actually has a lot of energy that I got myself excited about. Jack Black is kind of in the same boat as Nicolas Cage. He's having the time of his life. And if he can't go on his wavelength, the movie's just not going to work. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy is not the greatest peach in the world. They don't really give her a ton to do aside from just the physicality, which again, it's a voice performance. But there are a couple moments where she gets to kind of have like a weird face movement or like a really kind of sense of excitement that reminded me of all things of like the Lola Bunny incarnation on like the Looney Tunes show, where that was a character that was very much one thing. And then they took her as like, let's make her really exciting and out there. And I kind of saw twinges of that in this that I would love to see explored in a sequel. But I will say really quickly, I didn't love Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong. I thought it was a little distracting. I liked his relationship with Mario. That was one of the things where I really was like, you have something there. You know, go on to that, like ride with that. And they don't. But like his performance, I thought was just a bit more, you know, what I feared, which was like the Seth Rogen comedyisms of it all, the kind of, you know, fake machismo of it all. The, you know, the things about Seth Rogen that I don't really gravitate towards as a performer, but I know a lot of people who really enjoy it. I like knowing that. I like I like hearing another another's opinion on that. Um, can we both agree that for Grumpy Kong, um, uh, Cranky Kong, voiced by Seth Armisen, uh, Fred Armisen. Cranky Kong, yes, Fred Armisen, uh, who's popped up plenty on this podcast before. Yeah. I I love his voice. I think that as a Cranky Kong, he he fit the bill. I I thought it was Larry David actually, dude. Um, it could have been several people, but it wasn't until I looked at this that I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, because I remember when I heard the cast list, I was like, okay. And then I heard Cranky for the first time. I was like, Is that, that's not Larry David. There's no, and then it wasn't, but it's and then it wasn't. <laughs> and that's kind of the thing is like, you know, Cranky Kong and Donkey Kong have that kind of thing where there's a kind of story beat where Mario and DK kind of, the thing that, com- that, thing that, the thing that has them in common is their relationship with their dads and their families and like their sense of loyalty about them. And it, again, it's not pulled at a lot, but it's one of the few things that I find this movie is at least trying to, you know, make a parallel out of. What did you feel about that character who was all doom and gloom in the jail cell? Oh, that would be, I had a note about this, uh, Lumily, uh, voiced by Julia Jelinek, who is the director's daughter. Is that Rosalina's star? 
What? Okay. I don't know this lore. Who, why, why are they trapped? Wait, why are they so, I, are they so I should, just like, I should specify it's been, it's been so long since I played Galaxy. I do not remember <laughs> a lot of the lore about it, but I will say she provides some of the movie's most deeply unsettling comedic moments. And I was genuinely just, I was laughing myself stupid anytime she'd come up. Absolutely. This character in the Super Mario's movie, like my, like young, young kids are going to go see this. Young kids, uh, whatever. Young um, kids will. Are go, uh, no, but I'm saying young kids. And it feels like that's a double, like it's an oxymoron. Uh, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> so anyways, this character saying things like, Oh, death, finally, the release from the, from this pain or just saying such dark things that every time they would speak, you know, all the kids, all the, penguins um are like oh my gosh like stop talking and it's a great moment every time you know we have them say so they're even uh i can't say much about the end because that would be spoiling it but i'm looking at a still right now of princess peach in the garden of the flame flowers and oh boy that is so beautiful i think that however um illumination decided to play with light in this movie um, or not even, you know, the light that exists here in the locations that they are making. Um, I was always pleased, especially in Mushroom Kingdom, because of all those colors. And here it's no different. They they have such beautiful visual um, material that they incorporate in this movie that I think it is well worth like the IMAX screen or whatever kind of big, bigger screen you can get your eyes on to see this movie in. And that's kind of thing is like, I'm not going to say like it's so drastically different from Illumination's other work because it does still have that kind of bulbousy, almost fluffy looking character designs to it all. Like it still has that. But you're right. The way they play with light and especially color, like this movie is incredibly. I was lucky enough to see it in uh, uh, in Dolby Atmos over at uh, AMC. And the colors really do pop, not just like the, you know, the reds and the blues, but like the darks and the grays and like the way that fire interacts with everything that. The opening scene, slight spoiler, is the one you've seen in the trailer with, you know, Bowser attacking the um, uh, the Ice Kingdom. And it looks glorious on there. Like, there's a whole cart chase that you've probably seen in parts of the trailer that looks really great. And I should actually say that a lot of the action scenes in this, really fun. Like, the cart chase. I had so much fun with the cart chase. Um, the actual, like, training sequence with Mario, which I admit just kind of comes and goes. And narratively, it's kind of weird, but it looks really fun. Uh, the only one that I didn't really love was the actual final sequence. I thought that could have been a bit bolder, a bit more interesting, uh, especially like coming off of like Dungeons and Dragons, which like that isn't a movie with a stupendous final battle, but like it knows what to do with it. And I felt like this was just kind of put your characters in a space, have them do some things, and then it ends. And I was kind of disappointed by that. I'm going to present an idea here and you tell me if it if it um, resonates with you or not. I feel as though Mario and Luigi are both strong characters in their own in a in a way that we didn't need a big you know we are brothers bump 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 we didn't need that type of moment in this movie let alone it came but i i'm reflecting on the movie now and i'm thinking you know yeah the brothers relationship was really important between mario you know saving his brother luigi but i found it more so just like saving his best friend or like he's here because he's saving a member of his family but i didn't think the movie was trying to prove a point of you know we'll always be there for each other and we'll always protect each other um i'm recalling a flashback scene where the boys do look out for each other the little baby mario and baby luigi they look out for each other like on the on the school grounds and whatever but I almost feel like that fell secondary to this 
bigger, better story of um, a potential, uh, you know, a dictator like Bowser. I'm just calling him a dictator. Um, moving on to like destroy these new worlds. It it came out of then they brought back the point of brotherhood which I was then kind of like, oh, yeah, like I forgot that that's what this movie was about because I was so I was so involved now in the kingdom's own struggle outside of, you know, Mario's interpersonal relationship with his brother and trying to save him. Um, I don't know. Is, is some of that point getting across to you? You know, did you feel that that moment was as strong as they set it up to be? A fair amount of it, actually, because it goes to kind of the idea of like, this is the Super Mario Bros movie. And Mario is at least given a character to him, like he's given kind of a pathway to him. And Luigi, God bless him, they try. And I'm kind of going off what you're saying. Like, Luigi is kind of an interesting character. Like, he's arguably more interesting than Mario. Like, he's a scaredy cat who has to kind of overcome his own securities and own his own sense of fear to, you know, save the day and all that. I identify a lot with him as a result of that. But it's that kind of idea of the movie doesn't really want to acknowledge him. Like, what is Luigi's story in the movie without getting spoilers? It's basically a lot of jokes. It's looking at Bowser as a character, but Bowser is really thinly written he's basically an incel in this and not a very interesting one it just doesn't <laughs> go anywhere with him you said he's basically an incel dude am i was, wrong i mean the more and more we look at this like it was very creepy his approach to peach and like what he wanted out of her like make me may i would make the best husband for you be my wife and we'll rule the galaxy together and i'm just like really really okay <laughs> And again, that's a credit to what Jack Black is doing because he's making him quote unquote likable in this. But when you boil it down, that's essentially what they're doing. Absolutely. And so near the end of it, I just thought, damn, I wouldn't have minded Daisy in this. <laughs> like I wouldn't I, have minded yeah. another another woman to for Peaches to play off of. Because thinking back, there there's not really there's no hardly any female characters in this outside of um Anya Taylor Joy's Peach, other than Mario's mom, I would say kind of going off your uh the earlier point of like yeah the story in itself is just really thin and it goes to the idea of like what is the movie trying differently and it's not really it's essentially mario and kind of luigi teaming up to save the princess and defeat bowser and save the day yay but if you're a game fan and this movie is clearly on some level made for either gaming fans or people who respect that legacy of the games then you're coming to this as someone who wants something a little bit more, I would hope. And if you're coming in as a kid, like you say, like, yeah, you're going to be interested by the colors and the jokes, sure enough, but is there anything else really there? And I kept finding myself, unlike Dungeons and Dragons, where I kind of had, I assume you're thinking of the same thing, where like, you didn't think that much of Dungeons and Dragons. No, but Dungeons and Dragons was fun and consistent and kept and constantly had me guessing and had really neat tricks with the writing. And this didn't really do any of that. It was just kind of a pretty stable Mario movie that I'm surprised is as stable as it is, but doesn't really do enough to kind of flip the formula or give us new takes on the characters or give it really, frankly, stakes that go beyond just the ones you would think. Rubbing my chin to decide if I if I agree with all of those sentiments. That's hmm. that's fair. Because well, you also you also like Dungeons and Dragons more than I did. Uh, oh, I love Dungeons and Dragons. We walked past the poster on our way out, and I said, honestly, guys. It's probably going to be in my top 10 <laughs> because yeah. I, I look back and I think that movie was so fun. Um, here, I don't see the same type of, you know, trajectory for the Super Mario Bros. movie. Uh, that's okay. I don't think that I'm well, I don't think that I'm exactly within its target audience. But that being said, I exist in some of that space just because this game was nostalgic and was something that I was looking forward to, um, or this movie. And I'm just picturing myself what, how else this movie could look so that it, 
met some of those points that you threw out there. Cause I do, I do, um, I do find sense in them. Like, yes, you're showing up to this movie that doesn't have stakes that go beyond. They don't have stakes that pertain specifically to a Mario, a super Mario bros movie. And that's a problem. So in my head, I'm like, you know, where can you solve that? And where, what hole can you fill to, to, um, I don't know, to satisfy that type of concern, but I don't know. And if you have another point, great. If not, we can move on to ratings. Well, I was going to kind of play on your end real quick, which is like, think about where Nintendo was coming from this. Like, this is a company that had one Mario movie in, you know, the early 90s that monumentally flopped and that they have been gun shy about all of their properties since then. And now you're getting another take on it. It's kind of like the Force Awakens argument, but I think Force Awakens is a tremendously better movie than this. But it's the idea of like, you want to play it safe to get people back on board of the concept. And I completely understand why they did why they did illumination as well because like i like some of the jokes in this movie they're not the most clever jokes sometimes but they do work and it's kind of that idea of like it wants to be as broad and as likable of a movie as possible so in other, in other words i get why they took the approach they did i'm just saying it didn't quite resonate with me beyond a couple of layers another chris pratt take on a video game franchise in voice acting the lego movie where does that stand in comparison to the super mario bros movie in my opinion, far superior. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. And I'm, I'm sitting here like, and there's a reason why, like the stuff it plays with makes sense for the material they do. And here is it illuminations fault. Is it, it, here's the thing. It is a little their fault, but it's not entirely their fault. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Super Mario Bros. Movie X despicable me X minions. It is on the way. We see it. It's coming here. X, uh, Grinch, um, you just gave me a terrible, terrible idea. What? You know the Mario Raving Rabbits crossovers? Yes. Do that, but with the minions. Okay. You have an idea that they'll will, they will do the crossover, but then just like the Easter egg will be like two or three minions that just make it into the space and that'll be golden. I recently was perusing the Nintendo eShop and I did see that game pop up and I thought, what in the hell is this? <laughs> I, although that's one of those games that has popped up throughout, you know, my childhood, but I just never invested time into. Have you? No, I never played the Raymond games. I'm like, what are those games about? I'll never know. Give me Super Mario Bros. Olympics. Give me Super Mario Party and turn that into a movie. I don't know. They can do, hopefully this is a mark for them to, like you say, just make a launch point for where this franchise can go. Now, which streaming giant is going to eat all of this material? We'll wait and find out, but it'll be one of them. And Super Mario Bros. movie, they are most definitely going to have Haunted Mansion, or Haunted Mansion, uh, Luigi's Mansion movie. Like I do not see them dropping the Mario Bros cinematic franchise anytime soon this is this is barely the beginning you know what's strange is that even though i'm being really harsh on this movie and my rating is going to reflect it i would be there day one for a sequel that's how much stuff i think in this movie has going for it knowing that i will start us off on our ratings with a bit of a more positive note okay um this movie it deserves a 7.7 um if it were a power-up in the mario world i would say that this is um, quite easily the, the penguin suit power up because as soon as you are strapped into your seat, you throw that, that water ice slide right in front of you and you go on your penguin belly and you go. And this movie takes you and it holds your hand. No, it doesn't. It actually kicks you and you slide even faster. It's a great time. It's so much fun. I saw this in a theater filled with children and families and just to laugh alongside the two grown men adults who were sitting next to me made it a <laughs> more enjoyable. And I do find myself revisiting this at home with my little brother. Um, maybe mm, 
maybe less so with like the, the friends that I have that are my age, but that doesn't mean that I'm uh, not going to be thinking about this movie and how much fun it was, you know, the next time that I play, be it Mario Kart, Mario Party, Smash Bros. Uh, this is a great cinematic approach for Nintendo. I only hope to see more. So yeah, 7.7. Um, if I had like a, the strongest gripe about it, it would be the soundtrack. Um, I found that the plot, though less narrowed in and focused on its source material, was forgivable for all of the imagery it provided. So 7.7 for me. And yeah, that's totally fair. Like I also, uh, to say, I saw it in a packed theater as well with, you know, families and like everyone just enjoying the movies again. And like, I'll never get tired of seeing experiences like that. That's always amazing, no matter how good the movie really is. For myself, I go back and forth. I think I'm going to stick with a six for right now, just because I do think it is just on the edge of good. I think it's, you know, it's entertaining on a purely, you know, character fun vibrancy level. It's certainly one of the better efforts from Illumination I've seen in recent years. I liked some of the characters more than I thought I would. How much of that is based on like the iconography versus what's on the page? I don't necessarily know, but the voice cast is making an effort. Certainly, you know, Jack Black and Keegan-Michael Key deserve their flowers. I do think the soundtrack deserves some flowers for how creative it is at least trying to be. The whole movie on its basis of trying to be this distillation of the Mario mythos and legacy, I was really impressed with as a fan of the game. I did have a lot of fun with it on certain level, but as a film fan, as a film critic, I do have to look at it from that level and just go, I wish I found more to gravitate towards. I, you know, it's 90 minutes long and it still feels like it slogs at times. I really just wanted a bit more effort from it. Uh, it is still in theaters right now. I'm sure the majority of you have seen it at this point. Um, but yeah, like for families, I genuinely do think it's a great time, but like for me, I just wanted a bit more. That's all. And just so listeners out there and you, Brandon, don't think that I'm harking on some of the, uh, the work that came from Tyler. I do want to say that for myself, my gripes are, you know, additions of no sleep till Brooklyn, um, oh, hold, yeah. <laughs> holding out for a hero, take on me, thunderstruck. It's like any one of these, I, I would have forgave you, but to have all five of those, I'm like, I just got over listening to holding out for a hero, the Russian mix from Tetris. And here you are showing it in again. Yeah. I wanted to clear that up before you thought that I was, you know, having these opinions about Brian Tyler. I might go back and even listen to, uh, Brian Tyler's work just so I can hear, um, how he interworked some of the original Mario tunes into his own soundtrack. I will say that feels like an illumination note. And I, I'd agree. I'm right there with you. And that'll do it for episode 48 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for joining us on this post-holiday Star Wars celebration Mario extravaganza of an episode that might be shorter depending on how I edit it. Listen, while we've got you here, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, that's where you can find the show. You can go follow us at Plot Devices. That's just search Plot Devices in the tab. Give us a follow and give us a review as well. Uh, those scores do help boost the algorithm, get us to more audiences, get us to more eyeballs, and you know help broaden the popcorn club community that we've so tried to set up here. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, and TikTok, at Plot Devices Podcasts. I want to thank my co-host, as always, Noah Guzman. Noah, what do you got going on in your life right now? What do you want to plug? And uh, yeah, what should people know about going on in your life? Still saving up for those Orville Peck tickets. I'm going to go, Brandon. I need to experience Bronco mm -hmm. live. I got to tell you, I don't know how it happened, why it happened, or when it's going to stop, but I got pulled into this reality TV <laughs> like uh, binge. And so I've been all over Love is Blind. I've been all uh... over... Uh, Love Island UK. And there's a new one that I'm watching. It's called Amor Confianza. Um, outside of my work, outside of my, you know, watching the movies all the damn time and playing new Lego games. By the way, oh my gosh, I'm going to plug this actually. I have recently picked up my Nintendo Switch again and I purchased 
three Lego games just for the sheer joy of the inner child inside me who always loved playing those damn games, including, you know, Indiana Jones or like the original um, Lego Star Wars that had, uh, you know, the prequel trilogies on there. Insane. That being said, I purchased the Skywalker saga from Lego Star Wars. That way I could play even the new trilogy with Rey. And then I purchased Lego DC villains so that I can go have my fun in Gotham with all of those characters. I did buy Lego Harry Potter years one through seven. So that's a game that I always saw on the shelves and thought, I can't wait to buy you. And then whenever it was on sale, I never made the commitment. But here's me saying, you know what? You're worth nine dollars. I'll get all of your I'll play all of your chapters. Um, I am also uh, improving and perfecting and learning my Spanish. Maybe you can't hey. do one the other or the other. But yes, I am. Um, I'm not fluent in Spanish, though. You know, I wish I was. And so I've been taking an active effort in my life to just try and bring back um, Spanish, whether it be uh, just talking to my family more so in Spanish and the Spanish that I know and hearing what they have to say and them helping me by ear. Um, I have some apps on my phone that are teaching me Spanish and I'm not talking about the green owl. Um, I'm watching programs in Spanish. Um, I'm just trying to incorporate the language more and more as I, as one of my goals this year is to be bilingual. If I know how to say plot devices in Spanish, I would say it in Spanish right now, <laughs> but who knows what's on the precipice for this podcast. Yeah. And that owl knows what he's done. Um, you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. Follow me there. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music. Our debut single Wish is out on all audio platforms right now if you want to go check it out. And all of that information uh, and all sort of things will be in the description as well. That'll do it for Plot Devices episode 48. My name is Brandon King. That is Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices. And uh, we'll see you where the blue shell hits. That makes sense, right? Sure. Sure.